you would turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Last week, we again looked at this church in Thessalonica, Apostle Paul, right? A church that, that I certainly, when I read about them, I would go, man, I would, I would love to have that reputation here in the Ohio Valley in a good way, in a God-honoring, God-glorifying way. Uh, we've been looking at kind of one of the core things, what, what made this church tick, right? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, right? 1 Thessalonians 1, it says, You became imitators of us and of the Lord in spite of severe sufferings. You welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. You welcomed the message, right? And then our key verses are the last several weeks. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 says, and we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as it actually is the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. And, and we address that during announcements, right? The importance. And, and we looked and we've been looking at this distinction between receiving and accepting. Receiving and accepting, right? Again, in this room... A message is being communicated. You're receiving it for the most part. You're understanding the objective content of the message. Some of you take notes. You're receiving it in that sense. Whether or not you're accepting it, according to these passages that we've seen, you're, whether or not you're welcoming it into your heart, whether or not you're appropriating it, that's different. And that distinction makes all the difference in your life, in my life, and in our life corporately as a church. See, the church in Thessalonica weren't just going through the motions. They weren't just showing up at Sundays and going, yeah, that was a great message, was not a good service, tucking away the notes and leaving. They were receiving it and accepting it. And in this acceptance of it, this welcoming of it, they were appropriating it. And how do you know they were appropriating it? By their life. Their testimony. You ever hear it? words speak louder? Right? Actions speak louder than words, right? And so we've been, we looked last week at, you know, is, is there's a lot of notes in your outline. Why are we sometimes challenged with accepting? Right? What, and we looked at the heart level, and, 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 and I understand last week was, was really challenging because it hits us right at, at the street level, at the gut level. To accept God's word is very challenging, and, and I want to I just move a little bit, little bit further because this idea of accepting and this idea of, of why am I so challenged by it? We, we, we saw last week it's an issue of the heart, ultimately. It's an issue of the will, right? It's an issue of heart and will. And, and I came across this, this uh, quote. It says this by a gentleman named William Barclay. He says, The plain fact is that when people do not want to listen to the truth, they will easily enough find an excuse for not listening. They do not even try to be consistent in their criticism. They'll, they'll, they'll criticize the same person and the same institution from quite opposite grounds and reasons. If people are determined to make no response, they will remain stubbornly and sullenly unresponsive no matter what invitation is made to them. 
and, 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 and that's a challenge, and I understand that, right? I understand that. I, I shared with you, we used to give out sermon notes on half sheets, and after a certain amount of time, right, Mike gave me a stack, and he had a stack like three inches high of sermon notes because he had collected them. And it's like, okay, three-inch high stack of sermon notes, messages received, right? But how much of that was accepted? How much of that was welcomed into his life, into my life? And that makes all the difference. And, and so we're gonna, just going to move a little bit further. We looked at James, right? And, and it says in James 121, it says, Humbly accept the word planted in you. Humbly accept. And so this idea of humility, right? And, 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 and humility really is meekness. And it, it kind of says, accept the fact. Humility is, is an honest assessment of who you are in light of who God is, right? Sometimes we think humility is beating yourself up and saying you're the worst person ever. That's not being humble. Humility is being teachable, accepting the fact that you might be misinformed or wrong. Wrong. And that's that's challenging. Why why might I, why might you at the core be challenged to accept, to welcome joyfully God's word into your heart, into, into your life? Because when God's word comes in, you might discover that based on God's truth, you've been wrong. And that's, a, that's humbling. And then you have to make a choice. Are you going to humble yourself? Are you going to be teachable? Or are you going to dig yourself in and just, right, just stand your ground? What are you going to do when you and I are challenged with the fact that you might be wrong. Maybe not completely wrong, but wrong enough to send you off into a, into a wrong direction, right? So turn to Second Corinthians, and we're going to look at the Apostle Paul. And we're going to look at a familiar passage, but I hope that in light of the context of where we've been together, it's going to minister to you. And you're going to see that, yeah, the Apostle Paul didn't have it all together. And the Apostle Paul had to deal with this very issue of being wrong. And the Apostle Paul had to deal with this very issue of accepting God's truth, even if he didn't like it. Even if Quite frankly, he may have hated it in the moment, right? In 2 Corinthians 12, uh, verses 1 through 6, the context is Paul shares that 14 years previously, he had experienced something supernatural. He had been brought up to what he calls the third heaven. And in, in, in Paul's culture, the, the idea of different heavens was common. And this idea of three heavens was common, the first heaven being the atmosphere, the second heaven being the universe, and the third heaven being where God hangs out, right? 
So that's, that's, it was kind of common, right? That, that's what he's saying. So 14 years ago, he was brought supernaturally to the third heaven, right? And in verse 2, uh, two and 3, or yeah, 2 Corinthians 12, 2 and 3. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, he's speaking in the third person, which Jewish rabbis tended to do. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. So he's telling, hey, never really shared this before because Paul is under persecution right now, right? So in the context of being persecuted, he says, hey, let me share something with you. Fourteen years ago, I had a cray-cray experience. Can't really explain how it happened. But I ended up in paradise, and I saw some incredible things, things that I can't even share, right? And so, so that's the context, and let's go to verse 7. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Verse 7. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, right? So Paul's describing this trial that's really been going on for 14 years. 14 years. See, I think sometimes when we think about our walk with Jesus and, and sanctification, and, and Eileen, do we have that slide of the... Uh, is Riley back there? Right? I've shown you transformation, you know, kind of like going from the caterpillar to the butterfly. That's metamorphosis. That's what he's talking about in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Be transformed, metamorphosis. So we come to know Jesus, and, and over time, we grow from the old man into more and more like Jesus. And I think sometimes, as believers, we get this erroneous idea that, well, the longer I walk with Jesus, the easier it gets, Right? Right? Isn't that how it works, right? We, in, our, in our job, we progress, we get promoted, and we get better and better at it, and things just get easier. And sometimes when things don't go as easy as we thought they were supposed to have been by now, we're like, is there something wrong with me? Lord, what's going on? This is the Apostle Paul, 14 years into his ministry, sharing that, you know what? Yep, I struggle too. I struggle too. So maybe, thank you, Eileen, maybe our challenge in being wrong is right off the bat in the beginning is maybe you have a, a, a wrong idea of what it means to be walking with Jesus. Maybe you thought by now you're supposed to be walking on water, but you're just treading. <laughs> right? 
and, and, and you're struggling. And you've been, you've been walking with the Lord for 10, 20, 30 years, and you're still, these things still come up, and it still drives you to your knees. And you're almost like, and now, you're, now, instead of dependence on the Lord, you're just beating yourself up for being a failure. So maybe over time, these, these trials that you thought were supposed to go away, you know what they've done? They've made you bitter. They've hardened your heart. Well, that's just my lot, you know. I, why am I cycling back? And that, that's part of what I, what I wanted to share with you, why I shared with you my own journey of, of dealing with fears and anxieties and all that. That's 25 years. 25 years. And I, and I can specifically tell you two times this week where I reverted back to 25 years. And I was challenged as if it was 25 years ago. Two distinct times this week where I was just redlining in anxiety and my mind was racing. And I go, stop! And I had to stop my mind and I had to make a choice and I had to do something that was completely opposite of what I was feeling in the moment. Because everything in me wanted to go back to the behaviors that were going to, in my mind, physically lessen the anxiety. And everything's like, you can't do that. You can't do that. You can't do that. You've you got to go that way. You've got to go that way. 25 years of this, you know you've got to go that way. And I was reminded, yeah, it doesn't get necessarily easier, does it? And I don't think it's supposed to because what does God want with us? Fellowship relationship, intimacy, dependence, love, love. And in these moments of, of even in my own life, 25 years later, two times this week, I'm like brought to just, oh, are you kidding me? And then I worked through it. I was like, thank you, Lord. I was reminded of his goodness again. And my absolute weakness in this area again so it's okay there's an okayness to that and and so some of us may need to get over this wrong idea that well over time these things are just going to go away of themselves no what happens over time is you learn how to deal with them biblically when they do arise over time you learn okay spirit flesh spirit flesh over time i just choose spirit more and more and more the circumstances still arise, but how I choose to deal with it becomes different. Amen? See? The circumstance, the trials, they're always going to present themselves in life. Jesus says, in the world you will have tribulation, but over time as you walk with Jesus, you learn how to deal with it based on this in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what's different. That's what transforms you. So maybe you got to work with that, that you were wrong in the idea that... You're supposed to be better than this. There's a lot of Christians walking around with a lot of guilt. And a lot, I love what Bill says. You got a back with, well, bag with a whole bunch of rocks in it. And one of your rocks that we carry around, one of the rocks we carry around as Christians is, you should be better by now. So maybe you have to work through that. Maybe you've been wrong about that. Maybe you've been wrong about that, right? He's given a thorn in the flesh. That word thorn, right, it's not a little rose thorn. 
Okay, it means a stake. A stake that was used to torture and impale people. Changes the reading, doesn't it? Right? So a thorn, a message to torment me, which is buffet, pound you with your fist. So for 14 years, the Apostle Paul has had a stake beaten on him. Right? Now, what is this thorn in the flesh? There's a lot of debate about it. Some think it was a physical issue. Some think it was the false teachers that were coming in and railing on him. He doesn't go into a lot of detail because the important thing in the passage is not what the thorn is, but the purpose of it. The purpose of it. And so maybe today you sit here and you go, yeah, I got a stake in my life. And it's been hanging around for a long time. And I'm feeling pretty beat. I'm feeling tormented. I'm feeling buffeted by this thing. So now what? What are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with that? What do I do with that? And look what it says there. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. He has this thorn, this stake that's pounding him. Three times it says he pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. And what was the Lord's answer? No. wasn't wrong for Paul to press regarding the thorn. wasn't wrong. Right? We're supposed to cast our cares on the Lord. Bring everything to him in prayer and supplication. Where Paul was wrong was in what he thought was best for him. See, Paul was wrong. Not to pray that it be taken away. You can pray that. Bring, pour out your heart to God. But where Paul was wrong was that he thought he knew what was best for him in the situation. He thought what was best for him was what? Take it away, Lord. That's what's best for me. That's what's best for my ministry. This is hindering my ministry, Lord. This is this is. This is crazy. It's gone on for 14 years. Lord, I know what's best. Take it away. And he was wrong. We have a hard time saying that. He was wrong. He didn't know what was best for him in this particular case. Who did? God. And so there's the church. There's the heart issue. Have you ever had a thorn in your flesh? And you told God if he would just handle it your way, everything would be resolved. Has anyone ever given God your plan of action? And simply said, would you sign off on this, please? Because if you just follow my plan, it'll all go well. 
Anyone? And after you've created your plan, have you ever had to deal with the fact that God seemed to be ignoring your plan? And at that moment, you are challenged at the core. Because you know what's best. You know what God should do to fix it according to your opinion. And what if you're wrong? What if I'm wrong? Now what? Now what? Three times. This is the Apostle Paul. Oh, the Apostle Paul. How many times was he wrong? Maybe. We don't know how many times. We don't know over how long. He was wrong three times in praying what he thought was best. And three times God said, no, I know what's best. Are you going to accept my way? Are you going to humble yourself? Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Woohoo! According to God's word, we're wrong. We're just wrong. Not intentionally, not maliciously, but you're just wrong. Right? I, th- I think probably maybe it comes to the challenges in our educational system, right? Test anxiety, right? You get this, oh, you know, you get the test paper back. Oh, I hate being wrong. I hate being wrong, right? And it's like, oh, I want to be wrong. How many have ever got into a debate, dialogue, argue with someone, and you just hated to be wrong in front of them? And they're sitting right next to you. How many of you, okay, let's, let's have a moment of transparency. How many of you know a time when you know you were wrong? 100%. And you deflected it and changed the subject just so you didn't have to admit that I was, let's say it together, wrong. Wasn't that healthy? Let's say it to, we'll say the whole phrase, say, I was wrong. Ready? I was wrong. Whoa. Okay, now if you'd like to record someone saying that next to you, let's, let's, let's make it your ringtone. Let's make it your text notification. I was wrong. Who was? Oh, it's from Josh. I, I turn. I, that's his new text notification. Every time I text, it says I was wrong. Right? We're we're bound up about being wrong. Right? What do you do with that when you're wrong? And and, and you got to work through that. I've had to work through that. What? What is? Oh man, I'm wrong. I remember when. When, when 
believers before I was a believer would share the gospel with me. And I, you know, my, I grew up in the church, went to church. I was a good moral person, right? And they would come to me and they would share, well, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You're not, you're saved by grace through faith, not by works. See, what they didn't understand, a large part of my rejection was that they were telling me that the way I was raised was wrong. You get it now? I understood objectively what they were saying to me because they would read it right out of here. But what I was struggling with was a lifetime that was suddenly a lifetime of beliefs that was suddenly being challenged and a lifetime of beliefs that were suddenly brought to the point where I would have to say, And that's why that's why this Tuesday series on the Bible is so important because you're going to have to settle the issue of your basis for right and truth because in the, in our culture today they want everything to sit next to each other as equally valid but the law I've shared this with you before there, in logic there's a law it's called the law of non-contradiction the law of non-contradiction says two opposing statements Two opposing truth statements can't both be true. One is right and one is wrong. Right? It, it, it's here, here, law of non-contradiction. This is bread. The opposing statement is, this is not bread. It can't be bread and not bread at the same time. We get that. That's how we live our life. I mean, really, we really do. The law of non-contradiction permeates. This is bread, but it can't be bread and not bread. Okay? When it comes to God's truth and the spiritual world, what happens is everything, they want to let it all sit there together. So two contradictory statements they allow to sit there. And that just creates havoc. That just creates havoc. And then... You come to John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So here's the law of non-contradiction. Jesus is the only way. Jesus is not the only way. They can't sit there. Jesus is God. Jesus is not God. They can't both be true. Right? Someone's right and someone's wrong it doesn't mean you go out there and you berate people and you become belligerent and you know we're not talking about that but we have to understand at a certain point in our walk with the lord our challenge to accept his truth may be a challenge that wow really all these years i've been wrong three times the apostle paul prayed that this thorn in the flesh would be taken away because he thought he knew what was best. And he was wrong, right? Turn to the Old Testament. Turn to Judges, right, way back. We're going to come back to 2 Corinthians, so if you want to put a marker there. Or... But we're going to go to Judges, all right? If you don't know where that is, ask your neighbor to help you. 
table of contents, Joshua, Judges, right? Judges 7, right? Story of Gideon, and Gideon with his army is going to go fight the Midianites, right? And what's interesting is that as the armies are gathered, the Midianites have an army, if you look in chapter 8, an army of about 135,000. 135,000. Gideon has an army of 32,000. So the odds are already not looking really good. 135,000 versus Gideon's 32,000, right? Look at verse 2, Judges 7. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands. In order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her, announce now to the people, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. So 135,000 is now down to 10,000. But look at the important thing in verse 2. In order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her. What was God's purpose in whittling down Gideon's army? Who gets the credit? That was his purpose. And then if you know the story, he whittles down the 10,000 to what? 300. 300. God brings the victory with 300 so that who gets the glory? Because for me to accept a message, a truth, that is really saying, Richie, you're wrong, a large part of that acceptance has to do with how I view the source of that message. Amen? Do I trust implicitly in God's goodness, in His grace, in His love for me, so that when He tells me it's an area in my life where I am wrong... I can respond the way he's supposed to. I can accept that. I can trust that. And that's that's unnerving. That's unnerving. Because none of us like to be wrong. None of us, you know, wake up in the morning, gosh, I want to see how many times I could be wrong today. Right? It's quite the opposite. Quite the opposite. And what was the challenging is that Paul is speaking in Corinth, which is a Greek culture. So the Greek valued what? Success. Power. Self-control. They were us. It was very much we live in a Greek mindset. Independence. Right? This idea of weakness? This idea of, of, of humility? 
Oh, that was not part of the Greek culture at all. And so, into this, right, into this culture, Paul is explaining what's going on, and, and he says, in retrospect, I believe, look at verse 7, to keep me from being conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations there was given me, right? He understands there was a purpose. The purpose was what? To keep him from being what? Conceited. Many of us are limited in our understanding of, of, of trials and even God's discipline in our life as believers. And, and what I mean by that is we say, well, you must be going through something because you sinned. Oh, well, these choices you've made in your life, well, that's, that's the consequences. God's disciplining you because of your sin, right? We kind of we have that, that one understanding. Look at verse 7 and understand that Paul suddenly, because he accepts he, he accepts what God is doing, that his ways are higher than the way. Suddenly, God, Paul says, you know what? This didn't happen because I sinned. This happened to prevent me from sinning. Would you welcome God's thorn in your flesh if you believed that it was to prevent you from sinning? Who would welcome that? I would, may not be pleasurable, may be painful, but if I knew that God was allowing in something in my life to prevent me from sinning, okay, I accept that. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. So maybe you've been wrong in how you view trials in your life. Maybe God is allowing trials in your life, difficulties, because he loves you so much that he knows he's going to keep you dependent on him. I once asked youth, uh, or, uh, youth pastor for many years, and I once asked the kids, how much money do you want to make when you grow up? All right, what do you want to be? How much money do you think you need to make? And so we get all these numbers, right? Ten gazillion, right? And then I asked them this question. How many of you want to win the lottery? Oh, I'd love to win the lottery. I ask this question. What if God knew that winning the lottery would destroy you spiritually? With all the implications that would come out of that. Would you be okay with God never allowing you to win the lottery? If God knew Something in your life would actually lead to spiritual ruin. With all the implications playing out in the relationships in your life. Do you trust God enough to accept that, yeah, I guess I was wrong about wanting to win the lottery? Or are you going to go into this, well, Lord, okay, maybe not 100 mil, I can handle 50 mil. Okay, not 50, give me a mil. I can handle one million and it won't destroy me. See? All of a sudden, we go back into, we want to bargain. We want to debate. And God's like, no. It's trust. It's trust. It's, it's, it's this ability, this willingness to say, you know what? I was wrong. I was wrong. 
Winning the lottery wouldn't solve all my problems. Actually, winning the lottery would destroy me. I was wrong. All right? Think about the Apostle Paul. Think about, this isn't the first time he's been wrong. You remember when he was named Saul? Right? Don't turn there. Acts 8.3. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Acts 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. Right? You know, he's on the way to Damascus. He says, he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. No, you're not Jesus who, who, who I'm persecuting. I'm serving God. Aren't I? Saul was 100% convinced that he had actually been serving God. And along comes the Damascus Road experience. And he finds out that he was 100% from Jesus himself. You want a humbling moment? You want to you turn your world upside down when you thought you had it all wired and it was squared away. And I got this. I got this. I got this. Boom. What? What? I'm wrong? Are you kidding me? Yeah, you know all those people that you're throwing in prison? They're my disciples. But I thought. But I thought. But I thought. Yeah, you were wrong. You thought you were serving. You were wrong. How do we deal with being wrong? Are we willing to accept being wrong based on God's truth and his character? Right? I had a friend 20 plus years ago. We had a pastoral internship program. And I developed a good friendship with a friend who came through the intern program. And he went through the intern program and ended up at, I think, uh, Riverside or something. And we connected a few years later. And he tells me this story. He goes, yeah, me and my wife, after the intern program, we went to this church in uh, Riverside. I think it was Riverside. And we were just attending. And he goes, but you know what happened? I was just an attender. And he's a, you know, went through church. He wanted to be a pastor. And everything, but he was just an attender. He goes, you want to hear something funny? We attended. And I sat every week. And I went like this. If he would only do this. If this church would only do this. This would work. I know why that's not working. If they would only do this and only do this and only do this. He had this whole list of what the pastor in a church should do in order for it to work. Right? He says, he goes, you want to know what happened? The pastor left and they asked me to come in. He goes, you know what happened to that list that I had of everything they should do that for this church to grow and work? He goes, none of it worked. I tried it all and none of it worked. I was wrong. I was wrong. He came with this agenda that he thought was in the best interest of this church. And if they would only just do this and just do this, and then he got the chance to just do this, and he found out he was wrong. He was humbled. That's probably the best thing that happened to him as a pastor. He got humbled. He got humbled. Right? And so you look and it says, 2 Corinthians 12, we'll close with this. It says, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, and we're going to look at 9 and 10 
in depth next week. He said, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Okay? So there's a message. Somewhere along the line, it goes from his, his mind to his heart. And you know how I know? Keep reading. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You know what happened when he got over himself? And he accepted that he was wrong, thinking he knew what's best. And he accepted the truth that God's grace is sufficient. It changed his whole attitude. Suddenly, hardships, difficulties, persecutions are seen through the lens of God's purpose. God's plan. He's no longer, God, take it away. Why aren't you doing it? Are you not listening? What's going on? He's not railing. He just accepts. And he rests. God didn't give him an explanation. He gave him a promise. And he accepted it. And when he accepted, it changed everything. Maybe there's an issue in your life. The the anxiety and all that stuff in my life, I had to go through this. Lord, why don't you take it away? I don't get this. I know you could. And when I work through the accepting that his grace is sufficient for me in this area and that this past week twice big blowout i got to experience his grace being manifested in my weakness i understood why he doesn't take it away i don't rail on it happening anymore i look at an opportunity to let god's grace be manifested in my weaknesses my weaknesses and I want to encourage you like I said we're going to look at these verses in more depth this issue of being wrong and this issue of weakness I don't know where the American church we got so hung up on this because at some point for you and I to be saved we had to admit we were wrong about our way to get to heaven we were wrong about our sin condition, we are, you understand what I'm saying? The gospel is predicated on us accepting God's plan of salvation, which ultimately means I was wrong. You're right. Carry that forward now out of salvation into sanctification. Because God will grow you and I more and more as we're still open and teachable to being wrong. Still teachable to accepting our weaknesses. And men, I'm going to speak to you for just a moment here about, you know, we're talking about this men's ministry coming up uh, in October. I get it. There was a season in my life, even as a young believer, the last place I was going to be was going to be around a group of men where I had to admit being wrong or weak. Let's go to that. That sounds like a great afternoon. Let's see. Football. Being wrong and being weak. Football. Sharing my weaknesses with bros. Let's be real. Let's be real, men. 
And yet, and yet, when we enter in relationship with each other, genuine koinonia relationships, and you get to a place where you're like, you know what, fellas, I'm struggling. And I'm realizing I'm struggling because I've been wrong. Wrong in my marriage, wrong in how I'm raising my kids, wrong in my view of money, wrong in lust, wrong in whatever. Or you say, hey, fellas, I'm really struggling, and, and this is a weakness. This, this pornography, this cursing, this thought life, it's a weakness. I'm struggling with it. I'll tell you something. When you get to that place in relationship, when you get that authentic, you understand what, you, what it means to experience God's grace in a very real and tangible way. It's no longer theory. When you share your, 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 your life with other men and women, ladies, and instead of going, you get this. You just experience God's grace. You just experience God's grace. But somewhere along the line, the church became this, and we all show up because we're afraid of being wrong, and we don't want to show weakness, because the minute we're wrong in weakness... And we wonder why no one wants to come to men's group. <laughs> no. What is the church? The church is made up to those who are redeemed, those who are saved by grace through faith, those who are weak. Good. But our weakness is simply opportunity for Christ's power to be made perfect. Amen? To be manifested. That's why we need each other. That's why we need each other. We talked about the church, that when you're, when you're a believer, you're put into the church, right? The, the one part of the body can't say, I don't need you. Another, with Romans 12 says we belong to each other. So this whole idea of this lone ranger, independent island Christian, that's, ooh, careful. Because you said it, not me. It's wrong. And a lot of people are challenged. Oh, man, really? Okay. Potluck. Men's group. But you answer it not on the basis of your feelings. You answer it on the basis of what? Truth. You respond and you accept God's truth despite your feelings. And what is the basis of that? God is good all the time, even when I'm, oh, <laughs> right? But I got to tell you, as you work through this and you get over the, and you get freed from the bondage of always having to be right, man, I tell you, the burden's lifted. The burden is so lifted. When you don't have to come here on Sunday and got it all together. Hey, brother, good, good. How's it good? Everything's good, 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 good. Marriage is good. Kids are good. You know, kids are perfect. They obeyed me all week. You know, I mean. And then you come in here like, how was your week? Ah, it's okay. 
how's your marriage? Oh, drive me crazy. No, I mean, there's appropriate places to share things. But what I'm saying is when you get past being bound up about having to be right all the time, when you get past having to be strong all the time, there's freedom in Christ. Freedom to receive his grace. Freedom to show your love to others. Amen.